netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. This podcast is brought to you by Autodesk Flame Premium. Flame Premium software is built for the best artists to do their best work and meet today's tough challenges in high-end post. With an artist-driven visual environment and high-performing tools for everything from visual effects and 3D compositing to real-time colour grading, conform and editorial, Flame artists have everything they need for fast and interactive end-to-end creative finishing. Find out more at autodesk.com slash flame. Thanks for joining us for this FX podcast. This podcast is where we talk one-on-one with top visual effects artists doing cutting-edge work. We dig deep into the technical side, advance the craft of visual effects, and pay respect to the hardworking people creating amazing work. We do several podcasts, so check them all out over at fxguide.com. Today's guest is Gareth Edwards, the director of the film Godzilla. Longtime readers of FX Guide will recall that in 2008 we did an article about the show BBC production of Attila the Hun. That not only did he direct the show, but he did all 250 shots himself in four months. Do the math on that as to how many shots need to be finaled per day. Following up on that work, he, he acted as a professor for us on an FX PhD course, showing how he did all that work in After Effects. And it was one of our most popular courses. I wanted to take a second to talk to you about exactly how FX PhD works. FX PhD is our sister site. It's an online training site where we offer 10-week terms with a wide selection of courses you can choose from. They're downloadable video classes, 30 to 40 minutes each in length, taught by professors who are industry professionals like Gareth, who are committed to sharing knowledge. Each week, a new class is released. Some include high-quality footage, and the class has a private forum where you can interact with other members and the professor. In a term, there's new courses being done as the term progresses, and there are vault courses that are courses that have run in previous terms. Like, for example, Gareth's course is a vault course, and one that I did years ago on flame work for the TV show Red Dwarf are available in the vault today. It's all very well explained on the FX PhD site, and I'd invite you to visit and see what courses might enable you to enhance a skill or add a new one. So then we next talked to Gareth in an FX Guide TV episode for his film Monsters, where he served as the director, DOP, and sole visual effects artist for that feature film. So it's pretty exciting now to be able to catch up with him as he helms this huge movie. And, and this movie's been generating a lot of excitement ever since the first, tra- uh, well, actually the Comic-Con teaser was probably first and then the first trailer was released. And the buzz has just been building since then and the trailer looks fantastic. So really looking forward to seeing this film. And this is a really nice conversation. Lots of insight on how a big film like this comes together from the design process to the parallel nature of the process. So let's join now with Mike Seymour speaking with Gareth Edwards. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, my friend, I really do appreciate it. You're obviously super busy, uh, this build-up to the release of the film. I was busy. I was busy until yesterday. And oh, really? We, uh, yeah, we approved the 35mm print, and that was kind of the last thing, apart from the Blu-ray, that I have to approve. And so I get, I get a day off, and then we start all the publicity. Is so, the DVD yeah. version of the film the director's cut, or is it the same as the theatrical cut? Uh, it's... It'll be the same as the theatrical, but there will be um, uh, deleted scenes and, and special, you know, um, sure. extra features and stuff. So I was wondering if I could start with the uh, story process, uh, if I could. And when I was talking to one of the um, uh, companies that, you know, contributed to the shots, they said that the way that you'd kind of described the film to them early on was 
as if uh, the 60s films of Godzilla was somebody witnessing what had actually kind of happened uh, for real and then running back to the film studio and trying to recreate it. And sort of this is the real Godzilla version. Those earlier versions were the best technology they had attempt at recreating Godzilla. Does that paraphrasing sound about right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was mainly, that was more something that we, um, when we, we discussed things with the designers, originally it was like, okay, how do we, how do we approach the design of like, you know, that was one of the things that obviously at the start of the process when it's an infinite canvas and the screenplay could go in a million directions. The, the one thing you know you've got to deal with is the design of Godzilla. And so that started, that started before we even had a screenplay really, that started um, as like a, a thing that we were doing for a teaser that we were potentially going to show at Comic-Con to sort of launch the whole um, idea of doing the movie and, um, and yeah, so we kind of like, you know, you obviously, it's that thing of everybody has an opinion on what Godzilla looks like and, um, you've got to kind of tick all the boxes and fit within that, those parameters. But also if we literally just pick up, you know, the, the Toho Godzilla and put him into, you know, a modern, uh, Hollywood movie, it would feel out of place. And so, um, it was just trying to refine some of the shapes and just, make it feel more realistic and more maybe or more animalistic, um, a bit more like it evolved from nature. And so the thing that we said was like, well, imagine, you know, like you just said that uh, in the 60s, I mean, you know, 60 years ago in, the, in 1954, they witnessed this creature come out of the ocean, but no one took a picture. No one could really capture it. It was all word of mouth. And, and they sort of ran off to Toho Studios. They tried to explain what they saw. They drew some pictures and, and from that description, they went off and made all the movies that they did. But in our movie, for the first time, you're going to see that thing they originally witnessed. And you'd be able to look at it and go, oh, yeah, that feels real. That feels like a real animal. But I also understand how, from seeing that, they arrived at the guy in a suit, Godzilla, that we all know and love. So it didn't feel... So it gave us a license to kind of, you know, and use this term uh, carefully, but sort of improve the design. But whilst... Uh, but whilst also hopefully feeling and looking like Godzilla when you get to see it. When I saw Godzilla, one of the things that I found really interesting is that obviously you don't want it to look like a guy in a suit, but I'm not referring to that now, but he had what I sort of described as a very masculine kind of pose, like the way that he would hold his arms to his chest, the, the sort of the stance, had a real physicality and masculinity about it. I wonder if you could talk about the sort of, I guess the thinking behind the direction that you would give uh, on the characters, sort of in broad terms. Yeah, I mean, um, I guess one of the first uh, questions, it's a really interesting question that uh, animators ask you and the designers would ask is, okay, if this was a real person, if this was a human, uh, who would it be? Um, and after a while, we sort of settled on this idea that he would probably be... Um, like the last samurai, like an ancient warrior that's uh, kind of long since died off and he was the, the last one alive and sort of a lonely, solitary, kind of noble figure that would uh, kind of leave us well alone if, if it wasn't for the things that we did. And um, that was kind of the entry in in terms of a character to sort of grip onto. And, and initially what we did is like, you know, when you first sort of sit down and do these things, you go, okay, we're going to take this, it's going to be this really ultra real thing. It's going to be a real animal. Let's go grab 
loads and loads of clips. And we did. We got a researcher on it, and they went and got, like, hundreds of animal fighting clips, uh, grizzly bears, you know, um, you know, wolves kind of uh, in packs trying to uh, hunt different animals and stuff. And, and, we, and I thought, this is great. This will, this will work a treat. And this is when we were doing previs, and this was at the third floor. We were kind of trying to figure out uh, fight sequences and stuff. And so it was always like, yeah, let's look at nature. Let's go back to the source, look at nature, and, and that would be great. And then what we found is as we started copying nature, um, it's kind of an anticlimax because as good as that sounds on paper, like there's a reason why virtually every natural history documentary or wildlife program, it has narration because animals aren't very good storytellers. And, and if you just watch them, um, you kind of get confused over like, what are they thinking? Are they afraid? Are they, are they aggressive? Are they winning? Are they losing? It's really hard to tell. Uh, what's going on and so we ended up having to dial more and more like a bit more of a human sort of performance in their behavior so that um, you know you could understand as an audience what they might be feeling about what was going on and and their reactions to things because without making them too much of a caricature um, it, it, it was just very interesting that that at the end of the day you know you're telling a story and and your CG characters, even if they're supposed to be animals, are, are also kind of actors and performers, and they're also helping you tell that story. And you have to kind of lean on them just like you would an actor in a, in a scene and, and say, I know your character would do this, but can you help the storytelling by just sort of accentuating this bit or giving a little pause before you then do this? And it's the sort of thing that nature doesn't do. Like, animals don't do that. And, um, and we, so we, they just... I think it started off very animalistic with his performance and it became more and more, a little bit more humanized um, as we went along. How do you direct an animated character? Uh, I mean, especially a creature. Like, how do you, how do you, is it just a matter of directing the animator? I mean, how do you direct them? I mean, I'd love to take credit for it. I mean, that's, that's the thing about doing a film like this is that there's hundreds of people that you never get to meet. Um, there's, uh, it wasn't like doing monsters in the, um, it was just, you know, me in my bedroom type thing. It was, it was working with the best people in the world, you know, Entity and, uh, D-Neg, the majority of the visual effects on the show. And it was kind of like this process where we started with Previs. Like Previs became kind of my best friend. When we started this, I thought I was, I hated the idea of Previs. I thought it was going to rob the film of its soul. And, you know, the idea of trying to pick shots and decide exactly what we were doing six months before we even stood on the location or met the actors, I just I wasn't really into that idea, even though I used to do computer graphics. I just felt like that's the antithesis of what I wanted to do. But what I didn't appreciate is that when you do previews, what you're really doing is you're getting the chance to make a like a mini version of the movie without any interference from anybody. Like, you're completely given free reign. It's just you and the previous guys. And we had there was an in-house team up in Vancouver um, at MPC uh, that did kind of half the previous, and the other half was done by third floor. And it was... Um, and that was probably... I described that. That process is probably the most fun part of making the whole movie because it's the bit where you just... 
get to go crazy and dream and and just play around and try things and there's nobody over your shoulder there's nobody looking at how expensive anything's going to be or how much time we have to do anything and we basically laid out all the major set pieces anything with the the creatures in was all previous pretty much and all the decisions well we felt that all the decisions were made then and then what happened is obviously we go shoot the stuff and and the studio were very happy with the, what we'd done in the previous, and so we pretty much went and got that, those sequences as they were planned to an extent. And so on set, the great you know thing about that is you can show the actors, this is, this is the shot we're going for, this is kind of what they're doing, this is where, you know, for instance, this is where Godzilla is, and I'd even play the sound effects over the, the speaker system because I found that the actors give a better performance when they could hear all the sound effects and... And um, and then we got into post, and it's that classic thing of, you know, you write the film in the screenplay, then you rewrite it when you're filming, and then you kind of rewrite it in post. And in post, we definitely looked at some of the set piece stuff, you know, specifically the monster animation, and it just been kind of a placeholder. It felt like, oh yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll do that better when we get to, you know, we get down the line and. And then suddenly, you know, it came, we got to that point in the edit, it's like, okay, we've got to really be specific now about exactly how these things, what they're doing in each, in each shot. And, and that, I probably underestimated how quickly we could land on the final solution for that stuff, because it was, it was really probably the, what all the effort went into in terms of, uh, you know, us here at doing the post-production and, and probably the, you know, MPC in terms of, they were waiting on, because this is the thing that I never really appreciated when we got into this, is that, is that you you have to kind of do everything in parallel. It's not a linear thing where you go, okay, we'll edit the film and then we'll picture lock and then we'll hand everything over to the visual effects companies and then they will go and start creating their shots and when they finish, we'll start doing the sound design and then we'll do all the sound, we'll then speak to the composer and he'll do all the music. It's kind of all going simultaneously and so you're kind of what you find is you have to start committing things whilst you're still editing and still kind of finding the shape of the film. And so you're kind of trying to pick things that you feel is the most, okay, this is not going to change, this can go, yeah, we'll sign off on that. And you get to a point where you reach this area of the film where, you know, you still figure it out and, you know, it gets down to the wire. And that's why, you know, post-production and visual effects ends up being this crazy stressful industry that we all know and love because it's just trying to reach you know those release dates and, and make the film the best it can be you just push everything to the last minute and uh thankfully like mpc and d they did a fantastic job i mean they uh they really pulled it off so uh yeah i've actually forgotten what your question was <laughs> let's go back to the design process for a second and talk about matt Alsop. what was his role talk, talk to you about his relationship to him your relationship to him? Yeah, uh, Matt was uh, just someone I found by fluke along the way. He worked at MPC, and um, we we basically when we worked on the teaser, like cause, so, all the Godzilla designs were pretty much uh, done by initially by uh, Wetter Workshop, and uh, there's basically Andrew Baker, uh, Christian Pierce, and Greg Broadmore were like the three guys that really attacked the design of Godzilla. And we worked on it for what felt like months, and there was hundreds of designs. 
And we got kind of like 85, 90% there. Like we reached a point where, you know, within the studio and everybody, they felt like, yeah, okay, that's cool. That's him. That's great. And, but as we all know, like getting that last 10%, right, can take twice as long as getting 90% sometimes. And so over the next year, you know, we kept refining and refining and, and um, ended up seeing this one image that had been drawn Ross as an NPC of the face. And I was like, oh, my God, that's brilliant. Who did that? That's, like, let's use that. We've got to turn the face to look more like, you know, these features. Um, one of the things I was trying to do was that um, the eye sockets was, uh, I remember thinking about, I'd, you know, collect all these art of books. And there were these art of uh, the Dark Crystal movie. I remember there's all these sketches in this one page that's all these brilliant designs of eye sockets and I always thought they looked um, fantastic and and so Matt had taken these this idea and, and done like um, these deep kind of bird of prey style um, like inset eyes and, and raised cheekbones and it looked really good it was really effective and so that got me excited and then we had to do um, this teaser thing and a big pitch to the studio, and so I had to work on some previews for that. This was before the film really got going, and so I started doing some previews, and Matt ended up doing the storyboards for that because we were doing it with NPC at the time, and and he just really stood out to me as, like, this amazingly talented artist, and and uh, and weirdly, he's from my, the same home, hometown as me, in Eaton, in Warwickshire, and, and, and so we just really hit it off, and he ended up coming to Vancouver and, and being kind of my right-hand man in terms of, you know, drawing all the storyboards and, and helping with the designs and uh, the cre- other creatures in the film, um, which I think people will know by the time this goes out. Um, uh, it's called uh, Muto, it's a massive, uh, unidentified terrestrial organism. And Matt basically designed those. And, and, and there was lots of people involved and lots of people, you know, all my sort of design heroes had a crack at it, but Matt was kind of like the... the Godfather that kind of pieced all the different ideas together and kept it on track. And if um, if Godzilla is the lone samurai warrior that is almost um, not engaging unless he has to, what's the characterization for the Mutos? Because they are very different. So the Mutos are um, uh, parasites, really. I was I feel that like you get one buy-in with the audience where you're allowed one. One, like, crazy, you know, you can take one big liberty. And for us, it was always going to be that there's a 350-foot giant lizard. And and then you don't really get another buy-in. And so it was like, right, okay, we're going to have to, we've got to somehow come up with a way of having Godzilla fight something else, but that doesn't feel like lightning striking twice. Like, how are we going to get these other creatures into the world? And so something that obviously, you know, we thought about was, in the same way that HR Guide is alien, like in Ridley Scott's Alien, it has this sort of parasitic, symbiotic relationship with humans. Um, it was like, well, what if there's some sort of parasitic creature that needs, you know, back in the day, needed a Zilla carcass, a radioactive carcass in which to grow? Um, and then we thought, okay, that could work. And then we developed that idea. And what naturally fell out of that was this idea that, well, that would mean these creatures are attracted to radiation and they need radiation to grow. And then that became interesting because that was like, well, that actually starts to say something that's kind of a subtext to the movie, which is, you know, that we, as the West, we kind of police the world and say, you can have 
nuclear uh, power, and but you, this country can't have nuclear power, and this country can't, and we can have nuclear weapons, but you can't. And what if suddenly there was a creature that, um, you know, came back that was attracted to radiation? Suddenly the tables would be turned, and you know we'd be desperately trying to get rid of this stuff. And and I thought that would be really kind of whether people feel that when they watch the movie or it just is a cool monster movie or whatever, I don't know. But it, for me, it was kind of the meat on the bone that I was looking for in terms of trying to give the film like some undercurrent of having a point. The, the most sort of interesting, I guess, uh, design decision, brave design decision that you seemed to make on the Mudos was to not give them a highly articulated face, in particular not highly articulated eyes. Um, that really works in the film, don't get me wrong, but it's just a heck of a thing to have a creature that isn't uh, something that you can put a close-up on their eyes and have, you know, that shot of their eyes indicate what they're looking at, what they're thinking, whatever. I mean, there's no eyebrows, there's no, like, I just, it's a really different design decision. Was that always the case? Um, yeah, and I don't know if it was, you know, it, it, was, it, it, it wasn't always like, oh, that was a great idea. There was definitely times where it's like, why did we do this? Um, and I think the reason we initially did it was because um, I felt that I wanted Godzilla, you know, out of the two of them, you want Godzilla, you want the audience to emphasize with Godzilla the most. And so any little tricks you can use to help you with that. I always felt like, you know, you know, eyes are the windows to the soul. If you don't have eyes, you kind of don't have a soul. And so it felt like, well, that would be a good way for you, like, instinctively to not like these things because they're more insect-like, you can't really relate to them. Um, the downside, though, the heavy price you pay for that is you can't, it's hard to emote and to, like, understand what these things are thinking or going through or feeling, because they don't really have the, you know, that you can't really relate to them, because you, you always obviously look at the eyes for that that information. And, and so we started, like, I always knew there was going to be some bioluminescence aspect to them, but what we did is we started once we got into the shape of the whole thing, which um, we the other thing we tried to do was um, try and shape it in a kind of more angular way. Um, the, the, the muscles on it aren't smooth like normal uh, mammal-type muscles. They're a lot more uh, flattened and, and angular. And we called them like we would refer to them as, as stealth muscles. So it's got more like, we, as well as looking at birds and things like this, we also looked a lot at um, stealth bombers and, and uh, you know, um, military equipment and aircraft and stuff as, as for, like, the idea of shapes. And we even, we do even, like, the robot version of a MUTO, just as, like, a little experiment to see what, what then we could learn from, like, cool shapes and sharp lines. And there's something quite graphical about that that I am really attracted to. I kind of... I like I like that idea, and we sort of justified it. You know, the, the idea was is these things see and hear the world through electromagnetism, and so it would make sense that when when they don't want to be seen or they don't want to, you know, that they might have evolved just like other animals evolved camouflage, they would have evolved this kind of stealth-like angularity to its skin, and and so that they can like you can't they can't see each other if they don't want to be found and things like this, and. Yeah, and it was it was in terms of the eyes, it was definitely we just just wanted to make them a little bit soulless and 
I mean, the the person that did it the best is um, like HR guy because his original alien design is just like the high watermark for uh, creature design, I think. And and we obviously were looking at things like that. Um, there is also uh, it wasn't done on purpose. It was just probably because we looked at these films. But there's a little bit of Starship Troopers in there. I think there's a little, even a little bit of the T-Rex arms, even the shark, jaws, fin, uh, King Kong's forearms. You know, there's there's a kind of an element from all our favorite monster movies that we we sort of stole, I guess, and um, tried to amalgamate into something that felt like it was from the same animal. So a lot of people these days uh, have focused on Comic-Con for, uh, you know, great opportunity for companies to market films and stuff. But I was struck by just how significant in the evolution of this film your Comic-Con 8 shot, I think it was, um, initial uh, sort of teaser piece was. Um, because in talking to people, everybody refers to it as the kind of reference Bible. It also generated an enormous amount of buzz. And it also sort of, I mean, even talking to uh, to Jim, the visual effects supervisor, he was like, well, that's what got him interested in the film because of the visual style you kind of laid. It, I mean, did you fall into that in the sense that it would be that significant? Did you ever expect that to be that much of a template for stylistic and kind of emotional content for the film? Was that, again, deliberate or not? Uh, no. I mean, I, I, I spent the whole time in, pre, you know, like in development, pre-production, thinking the film wasn't going to happen. Um, and it was just all one crazy sort of fantasy dream of mine that, that I get to make a movie. And so when it looked like they were going to do this comic con thing, and if and there was some money put forward for it, I just treated it like, okay, if nothing else comes of this, I'll have this little short that I've been able to make with everybody. And so I just kind of wanted to do what I thought, you know, would give me goosebumps, and and I really thought it was going to get rejected. Um, I actually, uh, so what I did is I stole some uh, shots from a movie uh, that will remain nameless so that they don't try and uh, sue me. But I stole some shots from a movie as like a, like in, you know, as a reference as to how the camera would move and stuff. And then I put text over the screen saying like dead bodies, uh, uh, destroyed buildings, whatever it was. And did a little cut based, um, in the end, based on, uh, the uh, 2001 music, uh, and 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 kind of used uh, the Oppenheimer quote about um, I'm, I'm death destroyer of worlds, and 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 did all this thinking there's no way they're going to go for this. Like this is where I get sacked. Like as soon as I send this to Legendary, um, I won't be directing the movie anymore. But at least I'll know now, you know. And 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 I sent it, and the email I got back within like seconds or whatever it was was fucking cool let's do it and and so that just that was fantastic because what it kind of did is it just told me that they want to make the movie i wanted to make and i wanted to make the movie they wanted to make and and so it was a really solidifying thing like to the tone of the film and we went and did it and we didn't change any of it thank god and 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 then it was it was kind of ended up just through pure accident it was just this thing that whenever anyone got invited to the party like wanted to get an actor, you know, that, you know, has natural concerns about doing the movie, we would show them certain things, and the main thing that we'd show would be this piece, because it, it just it just got a very serious, somber... I've got to um, say, putting the Robert Oppenheimer 
uh, piece of dialogue from that 65, 1965 documentary, the, the, you know, now I become death, destroyer of worlds. That added such gravitas to that. It wasn't a, yeah, great, yeah, kind of trailer. It was a somber, kind of incredibly engaging, don't get me wrong, but it was not an obvious thing to stick a quote from, you know, 49 years ago on top of the a trailer for Comic-Con. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's part of me that when we, when we started doing it, I was thinking, you get a little bit like, oh, is this, is this wrong to do this? Does this feel like, is this not what people do in the trailer? And I suddenly remembered, oh, hang on a minute, but there was that Star Trek trailer where they used JFK saying, um, uh, you know, uh, we will put a man on the moon before this decade is out or whatever that quote is. Um, that felt like it was a step, you know, in the same direction, and obviously that had gone down well for them. So then it, it wasn't too much of a leap. But, um, yeah, it was definitely... I'd worked on... I was very lucky that I'd worked on a BBC documentary when I was doing visual effects called Hiroshima. Um, and part of that documentary, they did a whole piece on um, Oppenheimer um, and everything, you know, the development of the Manhattan Project and everything. And so I was kind of familiar with that world and... Uh, you know, the Bikini Atoll's testing and things like this. I bought all the books as references for that program. And so um, so it was just something I'd kind of forgotten about. And then when I started doing research again about, you know, nuclear weapons and um, all the obvious stuff related to Godzilla, it just came up. And I was like, as soon as I heard it, it was like, of course, of course, that's, that's, that's what we do. Can I switch gears now to talking about story? So one of the hallmarks of this film, and it's also been borne out in the uh, marketing campaign or the trailer campaign, is that you just don't give the audience a good Mudo-Godzilla fight to the third act. I mean, they're happening, but we're not seeing them or we're getting glimpses of them. Um, now, of course, back in the day, and this has, I guess, often been referred to, I'm sure people have mentioned this to you before, the whole idea of Jaws, but it was because they couldn't show the shark. <laughs> they, they went this way. You could show anything you wanted at any time you wanted. It's it's an unusual sort of aspect of self-constraint, sort of really, to not let yourself give the audience any major kind of mega battle sequence until literally the last third act of the film. Always the way you wanted to go? Um, I guess, I guess, I guess so. At least in terms of like the pretend graph you have in your mind of how the, you know, the roller coaster of the film sort of ebbs and flows, but you always want it to get like the peaks to gradually increase and increase and increase. And I think it's a real problem with, visual effects uh, movies is that there's a temptation, you know, that's a really, really, you know, easy temptation is to just throw everything at the screen really early on. And then what can happen, I think, anyway, is that you just plateau in terms of your interest. It's very hard then to top what you've done and, and, uh, and better it. So it was, it was always the intention to incrementally build, you know, the reveals. But I think it was also born out of the fact that, um, I guess, yeah, I mean, if you know, the, the, the benchmark movies for this, and I'm not in any way, or they never imply that what we've done is any, anything close to as good as these movies, but, you know, if you look at Close Encounters, you look at Alien, you look at Jaws, um, and you sit there with a stopwatch, like it's sometimes, I think for a lot of them, it's a good hour before you really start to get you know, the, the, the creature 
on the screen. And that was certainly and the case with Close Encounters, wasn't it? I mean, Close Encounters had that exact structure of building and building and building. You got a couple of scenes on a road at night, but there was just nothing compared to that finale. Um, yeah, and to me, they're the. I mean, I would, I totally believe you know that they're the best examples of this kind of film ever made, and 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 they they work a treat, and they've stood the test of time, you know, in my opinion, anyway, and so when you get a chance to do a movie like this, like they're the ones I'm stealing from, is the structure of those prior movies and the way that they drip fed the audience. And I think compared to them, we, we didn't, you know, we, we, we had a million shots more because obviously we, we can and we did, you know, so, so it wasn't quite the same. But, I but think you didn't have a shot blowout, as I understand it. The, the sort of level you pitched the production at, at, you know, the right sensible point where we were going into production, the kind of... You know, a lot, a lot of films go in and they're saying, I'm going to do eight, 900 shots, and then everyone goes, yeah, sure, it's going to blow out to 1,500. You know, we know that, but whatever, sure. But you didn't blow out. You actually struck, pretty much as I understand it, to what you thought you were going to do. Um, yeah, but I think, yeah, I think that the shots that we wanted to do, um, I was told anyway, an average twice as long as the films, um, we'd sort of hold them a lot longer. Um, which is kind of, I think, in keeping with the rest of the movie. And, and I mean, I feel like stylistically, like the pace of shots and the flow of the camera and the way the camera behaves and all the stylistic choices with the camera, I like to think anyway that at least whatever the camera's doing during what you might call the, the drama or the non-CGI um, elements, it behaves the same way when it becomes the CGI or monster elements in that it doesn't, it hasn't got that schizophrenic uh, behaviour that that some films do, where it feels like Prebiz has just gone wild and, and not been restrained, and and it just and it has a completely different like the camera behaves in a completely different way to the rest of the movie. And we like our early conversations um, um, with Prebiz early on, it was like okay, we just like we should treat this like we're treating every shot in the film like. It's got. How would we shoot it? Like, where, where would the crane go, or where would the dolly go, or is it handheld? And how is the handheld guy there? And like, I had a real. I had lots of little um, uh, kind of anal hang-ups about certain things. And one of them, for instance, was that um, that the camera, the cameraman couldn't be suicidal, and so that any shot that we got, it, it really had to like the, the the camera had to survive the shot. So, and the camera couldn't do things that um, real cameras can't do. And, and I think it's subconscious for a lot of people. I think a lot of people in the audience maybe. I mean, obviously people listening to your show know of all this stuff. But I think for a lot of people in the audience, it's, they couldn't put their finger on it, but there's just a realism. Because that's, that's the big thing I never understand is, is in, the, in a lot of films, there's so much effort put in by visual effects artists and companies and software writers and, to, to create this like amazingly realistic um, shot, but then the actual concept of the shot is unrealistic. Like it's doing something that shots can never do. Like they're flying through or around things in such a way that we know cameras can't behave. And so no matter how amazing all the imagery is that you're watching, there's something inherently false about what's going on. It just feels impossible in a way that you doesn't, you'd never see in the non-CGI photography. Yeah, for example, so, you don't have you don't have a single shot where we're in the air flying with a motor. 
there's nothing that I remember of you actually, you know, having a virtual camera that's flying around and weaving and ducking with the flying Muto. It just, it comes out of the sky and it flies, but we're not flying with it. Yeah, yeah. I kind of, I don't know what it is. There's just certain things where it was like, I just don't want to do that. And I know it probably frustrates, maybe it frustrates some of the audience because they don't get certain shots they want to get. But I think there's so many films that do that, that, you know, I just wanted to do ours in a way that didn't break those rules. It just felt like we had all the restrictions that, like you, you may even notice, anyone who's seen it, is that at the, in the third act stuff, there's shots when there's a high up shot it's always like, you know, we tried to put things in like the edge of buildings. Like you realize the cameraman's on the top of a, a rooftop and sometimes as he pans left, you glimpse a soldier. And so you realize that that cameraman is embedded with some troops and, and that's why he's up there and all this sort of nonsense. And, and so I don't know if it really, if, if it actually carried through to the experience of watching the film, but it was definitely like a little rule book that, that, I like to keep to when we were when we were kind of. Well, I think one of the most powerful shots of that is Hawaii when we come off the tsunami to the flares being shot up and those flares illuminate Godzilla and we don't have a magical camera that lets us see everything, Um, but we also don't have magic light either that allows. It's the flares that are lighting up the wet side of Godzilla. It's an incredibly cool shot, but it's not designed as a incredibly cool shot. It's just. It's uh, it works because the framing, in a sense, doesn't work. <laughs> you don't see everything. Yeah, I think I don't know. I can't explain it. I don't know how it works. But the reality is that often when you don't get to see everything and you are restrained and restricted, it has more impact and it feels more powerful. And I think there's this kind of, you know, for want of a better term, um, you know, the filmmaker when you sit down for two hours, there's this sort of uh, cinematic foreplay that goes on and you're sort of teasing the audience. You're trying to do it just enough that they don't get frustrated and, and hate you, but just trying to pull back on what they want so that they just have to lean in a bit more into the screen. And, and I know all the films I grew up loving did that and did it really well. And, and I don't think we came close to it with this film, but it, it was the the kind of guiding light for me was trying to get get that kind of those feelings as much as possible that 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 when you finally get it when you finally get the reveal like I mean one of my favorite moments in the film although I'm sure I don't know how everyone's going to feel about this like when the film comes out but is when you finally that we have this 10 minute sequence in Hawaii that builds up to the big reveal of Godzilla and you finally get him he's going to roar and something I always wanted to do which has been cut to the other side of the world and, like, not show a fight. And then you see this mundane, really domestic uh, situation, and on the TV is the fight that you really wanted to see, uh, shot through crappy cameras because people have their iPhones and things like this. And and it's kind of frustrating but kind of fun to be frustrated like that, and I find it fun. And as a side and note, so, didn't, you, didn't you film that background footage yourself on a 5D? Yeah, it was it was me and Seamus, the, the DOP. We on the last, I don't know if it's the last, it was the last but one night of filming in Hawaii, and we, I wanted it to look shit. <laughs> like I didn't want it because the problem is when you do this sort of um, fake uh, iPhone footage and you use the big crew 
it tends to look lit and contrived and never feel like real footage. And so, um, for whatever it was worth, uh, we've, we wrapped a certain scene and then we, we just got in a car and it was just me and Seamus with five Ds and we both tried to get, like, pretending that the, the creature was, uh, running across the street. And it was the first time in like three months that I got that feeling back from when I was filming monsters. And, and we were all like, giggling it was kind of like it was great it was kind of one of the most fun experiences because it was like suddenly the circus you know had been left behind and we were just running around with cameras like just and it was so funny because people people didn't we had some extras that we wanted to be in front of the camera like running and you know pointing and doing all that usual stuff and they came along and they didn't know what they were they were in for because they hadn't been told it was all secret and so when they turned up there was just like three of us with these five d's and we said okay so we're this is a uh, movie called Godzilla for Warner Brothers and Legendary, and we just want to film you. And you can see the look at us like, as if, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, like, yeah, right. And um, and we're like, no, seriously, it is. It is. So you can stand there and run this way and look at that thing. And they, they, all of them probably thought this is a, this is some sort of hoax. Um, but it was, um, yeah, that was fun. That was that was like back to basics. Talk to me about the third act, because while you didn't uh, go off the rails, you didn't like have a bunch of redos and stuff, certainly it feels, from what I understand, that the third act was the one that you kind of solved in post. It was almost as if you had the beats down, but the actual narrative story for the third act was the last thing to kind of fall into place. Is that is that correct? Yeah, I think that's fair. And, and I think, uh, you know, MPC needs... Uh, a pat on the back for the responding to that because uh, it was it was like what we'd done was we'd mapped out the entire film very 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 carefully in terms of the previs and then the third act had the same thing it was mapped out but then when it cut the creatures fight in it was that thing of we had copied animalistic behaviour and it was just the animals and um, and it was a bit like when they write in a screenplay insert fight here or and they fight you know and. And we had like the equivalent of that a little bit in the previews. And it was always this, because we were racing to start filming, there was this feeling of, well, we, we've got loads, you know, when we get into post, that's, we'll really put our attention on this and figure this out. And then suddenly post came along quicker than anyone, you know, ever expects. And it was like, okay, we've got to really, really got, like start being specific about some of this stuff. And, I'd, you know, I don't know how much stayed the same. It feels to me like roughly like about half stayed the same in terms of, in terms of that. But the, it was mainly a case of condensing, like making it shorter and more refined and making it more specific. So it's not just, because I always thought what would be really cool is, you know, you have shots of Godzilla kind of looking at the other Muto and he's just out of breath and knackered and breathing and they just have this face off for a while and then, you know, and all those sort of behavior you get from humans in spaghetti westerns or, you know, any other kind of movie. Weirdly, when it's monsters and it's improvers, it doesn't. It's it's really dull to watch, <laughs> and so you start you start getting into this trap, which which I feel like um, films can get into very easily because what happens is, and I think this is where all those crazy camera moves can come into it, is that when when you do stuff improvers, you haven't got as much to look at because it's simpler models, the lighting's obviously simple there's not that much to distract you. And so things seem a lot more boring than they will be when they're fully rendered and fully realized. And so what can happen is 
is that you can get an inferiority complex about it. You can start going, oh, this is not interesting. Okay, let's make it shorter. Let's, let's move the camera more excitingly. So that, And then you, make, you do all those things. You cut everything shorter. You move the camera a lot quicker. And you make it really dramatic within previs. And then what happens is as soon as you make that real, photo real, it's just a chaotic mess, you know, and you can't concentrate on anything. And we didn't want to fall into that trap. So it was always trying to be careful about condensing it, making it more refined, but also allowing, for, hopefully, for the fact that when it becomes photoreal, it's going to be twice as engaging, you know, and you're going to be able to see all the glint in Godzilla's eye and and feel his soul in there a lot more. And and so, um, so yeah, it's a, it's a real fine line, I think. And um, Eric Carner, who was the... Uh, uh, previous supervisor in uh, in all the pre-production, uh, he, he did an amazing job. You know, I just uh, there's a lot of people's DNA in this film, and I think the previous guys, you know, they definitely should take some credit because because we stuck to that previous. Once we established it and figured it out, we definitely stuck to it a lot. You know, throughout the movie, it was kind of like my crutch in terms of um, you know, obviously it's, it's kind of a you know, big kind of a step up for me to do go from what I did before to this big Hollywood movie and and when you have a video that you can hit play on and it kind of works and it and you and you're excited about it yourself and other people are you you just can it's good to be able to say okay to get these shots because it just allows like it takes some of the stress out and it takes some of the unknowns out and and so whenever we got to the set pieces it spent so long on, with the previous trying to get that right that, you know, in those areas, we just literally went and got, got it, like, pretty much exactly. Now, the other people we haven't talked about is the uh, serious... I remember talking to you before the film even started, and, uh, like, obviously a key part of the equation was going to be the visual effects supervisor, or in your case, supervisors, and you kind of... Uh, I mean, I was floored when I discovered who you managed to uh, get on board. Do you want to discuss that role that Jim took and then he was helped of course by John joining yeah um, so Jim Rigal is uh, visual effects supervisor he uh, was on board from the beginning and I mean it's funny because I mean he knows this uh, I, I used to basically to get to get through doing the monsters film that I did I would literally put the making of Lord of the Rings on on loop all day long and uh, I can actually quote that documentary, I know it so well. Um, like all nine hours of it, or whatever it is, and and so Jim was like a hero of mine, you know. And and what they did on that movie is just so inspiring. And and so um, yeah, so we he was on early on, and 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 there was Alan, who was the producer here. Uh, Guillaume was the supervisor at MPC, and Ken was the supervisor uh, at Dineg. And um, and then basically after we finished filming and we got into everything, there was this bandwidth thing of like with the third act, like to get it all done in time for the release date, working backwards, it was clear we, we would be great to get, have another set of eyes on it. And so, um, you know, <laughs> just, just to work with all my heroes and tick all the boxes, uh, John Dykstra, for those who don't know, but I'm sure everybody listening to this knows, it was the VFX supervisor on Star Wars, uh, as long as you know, as well as lots of other things. Um, which is like to me, the reason I got into filmmaking was because of that movie. And so, 
it was just so weird, like, working with these guys and uh, lots of, like, strange moments where, uh, you know, like, you have to point the laser at the screen when you're um, doing a, a review, like a 2K review. Yeah. And you talk about the shots and getting into lightsaber battles with John Dykstra with the laser pointers and things like that. And um, I'd be forever doodling. Like, my go-to doodle when I'm bored is, like, X-Wings and Death Stars and things. And and so, like, during meetings that go on for hours, my pad would be full of, like, all this Star Wars imagery. <laughs> and then, as well as Muto's and Godzilla, obviously. And, and then suddenly I'd have to ask uh, John a question and I'd be trying to draw something. And as I was drawing it, it's a really embarrassing moment when I realized, like, the rest of the page is cluttered with Star Wars, <laughs> Star Wars characters. And things like this, and it's like, yeah, just ignore the, just ignore what's around that. Um, John is the first but, uh, to admit that this was Jim's film, in the sense that Jim was obviously the visual effects supervisor, and John came in to help him out. And, and certainly, that's you know, just as you described. Um, but I mean, I dropped in on you at, at the backlot when you were in post, and that was the morning after John had got the Lifetime Achievement Award for the VES. I mean, these are both these individuals are really heavy hitters in the industry. Um, I guess. Can I ask you a question? Like, what did you learn from them about the process rather than the individual shots? Because they are, both of them, incredibly uh, talented. Um, I, think, I think the thing it probably made it look like Jim is, Jim is so laid back and so calm. Like, you know, when you're really stressed out in these situations, which can happen, like Jim is this, he's very, very calming influence on everything and, and a really, really great guy, like a lot of fun as well. And, I think I probably just learned that, you know, if you listed in a, in, on a list all the things you have to do to get to the end of the marathon that is making the film, you probably have a nervous breakdown because there's so many things that, that you've got to, you know, questions you have to answer, things you have to look at and approve. And these guys had obviously done it, you know, a million times. And what was very clear is, like, the way to approach it is you just do one thing at a time. So it just be like, okay, next shot, and it comes up, and we just loop it. And then we talk about it and you just list the things that you think are wrong with it or it could be improved. And then you move on to the next one and you just do that every day with every shot. And at some point you're going to get to a point where you go, okay, it's all done. And the movie's finished. And, and they were both very like considering how stressed you could have got trying to do this kind of film and how anxious you could end up being about it all. Uh, from my point of view, like hanging with those two um, in post-production, it never felt like something that was out of control or that wasn't going to happen. It was always this methodical, like, you know, it's that, it's that mix between creativity and math, you know, where it is kind of becomes math at a certain point where it's like we just have to solve all these sums and then we have the answer and we're good. And, and uh it was it was quite fun. Like I'm really, you know, I think the world of both of them. I think I think I was very lucky to to on the first film ever I get to work with those guys. It was pretty like I can die or retire and <laughs> die a happy I'll man. Be very happy. Yeah. Um, one of the things you haven't talked about because uh, obviously the interviews up until now have been before the film's release. But uh, one of the things I I just would love to get your perspective on is. Um, and I, I was not even sure if this was going to be in the film. It's the atomic breath from Godzilla. And I was wondering how that um, translated to you and also whether you mythologized or reasoned its existence um, or whether you sort of, what was your sort of relationship to that? Because it's something that, you know, back in the day was kind of a, 
sort of funny slash effective technique, but it's not an obvious thing to breathe out a kind of vapor plasma type kind of fire. Um, did you ever go back and forth on that being in the film, or was that always there? Because not used a lot in the film. Uh, no, for sure. I mean, it's that thing you sit there and you say, okay, we're going to do this incredibly realistic take on Godzilla, and he's going to breathe blue fire. You know, it's it's kind of like, okay, where in nature does that happen? And you start looking into it, and, you know, the reality is there's not really many examples of that in nature. Um and so for a while, if I'm honest, for a while, I, I started, like, I was trying to look for anything that felt like it came from nature, and it was like the wrath of nature, and looking through loads and loads of imagery, and one of the things that I always loved was this one particular image of a um, a farmhouse in the middle of the prairies or whatever at night getting struck by lightning, and it's a single bolt of lightning coming down on it, and it feels very much like the wrath of God, and... And so I, st- I got really excited about the idea of, like, well, what if it's more like lightning? Like, not like the Emperor in Return of the Jedi kind of lightning, but what if it's, like, just a single straight, you know, you know, feels much more like the sort of thing that we experience in the world. And and so for a little while, I went down that path, and in the previs for the um, for certain sequences, there was lightning. And then we kind of got into it when obviously you get to that point where you've got to start doing the, the photo real version of that and we ended up just having a proper conversation about it with um, like Thomas Tull who's the producer he's a big you know Godzilla fan as well and and it was like what are we going to do if we do lightning you know there's going to be fans that are not going to be happy and we haven't really done the true Godzilla we haven't ticked there's a box we've not ticked and and so, you know, maybe it should go back to being, you know, more to do with, uh, you know, like fire breathing, but, you know, the blue version of. And and so uh, it was then like, okay, well, let's try and pursue that. And so we looked into different versions of that. And the reference that seemed most uh, powerful to me or interesting was the uh, in Vietnam when they had those uh, napalm uh, jet pa- uh, sort of backpacks, and yep. they would just squirt napalm onto things. That that looked cool, and and so that was kind of what we used as the brief for MPC. It was just like, okay, let's see what the blue version of that would look like, and and you know, you get blue flames, you know, you get it, they do exist. So it, I think, we'll get away with it, but it's it is it is definitely um, if there wasn't if there wasn't a history of Godzilla doing that, you know, obviously we wouldn't, it wouldn't be something you'd probably put in the movie, but it was so important that we include all those elements that make this a true Godzilla movie, even if, you know, the odd one is a little bit of a stretch for the uninitiated of the audiences. Um, But, yeah. But I mean, so his, back fins, going... his back fins have a kind of a glow. Mm. Like, there's some logic going on there, right? I mean, it sounds like you have a backstory yeah. on everything. There must be backstory on this. Yeah, the idea was there's, a, there's like a canal or a channel in his back. And the fins, you know, they're like the plates, they kind of like diffuse the heat, I guess, from, from what's going on. Like, two chemicals, I guess, mixing together that kind of flow up his back, up his spine. And you see them fill up in the, the idea is they fill up in the spine. So it's like as the chemical is growing up his back, his 
fins start to glow until they reach his head, and then he's like full. You know, he has uh, like a full load, and he he uh, and the idea is is that when he uses his breath, the fins die out, like as if that chemical is getting sprayed out of his mouth. The fins die out from the from the back of the tail up to his head, and until he's empty. Because we needed to kind of, I mean, I don't know if anyone noticed this when they watched the film. But the justification is we needed to somehow imply why he just doesn't do this all the time. It's that kind of Batman utility belt problem of, you know, what, why didn't he just use that at the yeah. beginning? And so the concept is, is a bit like, um, you know, it's a bit like a guy in that, you know, he needs he needs to have a rest before he can he can do it again kind of thing. And, yeah, um, and it would leave him vulnerable if he did it and then uh, hadn't finished off whoever he was uh, dealing with. Yeah, yeah. Hey, um, so I guess on your, you know, uh, worldwide media blitz and going around doing uh, lots of uh, interviews with lots of uh, incredibly interesting popular culture type things, they all want to ask you about working with the actors. I want to ask you about working with the actors, but not in terms of like, did you like them or not? I wanted to know if I could talk to you just quickly about your process with the actors. So I'm not interested in, in, um, you know, behind the scenes goss, but what I'd like to know is when presented with a scene that has visual effects in it, is it your instinct to rehearse that and rehearse that and then film? Or are you after a spontaneity that comes from filming that without a lot of rehearsal? And do you like them to block a space, even though, they're, you know, clearly if uh, you've got, you know, Ford looking at the Mudo flying off for the first time, there is nothing on the sort of stage there for him to look at. How do you actually work with the actors when they involve visual effects? Um, I think... I think, you know, it, for every actor, it's probably a little bit different. Um, but the reality was, especially with a lot of the shots in the film, that we had to be quite specific. You know, there's all those trucks and crew that have to stand in a certain place so they don't get into shot. And often the sets, some of them have been built. And, they, they can, you know, they will, they're only going to build potentially the parts that you're going to look at. And so... Um, so you you end up being a little bit specific, and 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 that's where the previs really came in because you could show the actor like on my iPad, I'd I'd show them what we were doing and explain the whole sequence. So they'd get it in their head, and then it was like, okay, so now we're going to go do this shot. And sometimes the shots would run beyond what they were being used in the previs, um, but previs did definitely become this bible for for what we were going to get and. There were definitely there were times where we were opportunistic and we were uh, there are certain things where I was trying to get you know we we got the crew to to be very organic and we just let the actors do whatever they wanted. There was I mean there's an example of it. I guess people who are listening to this have seen the film, so I'm not ruining it. Um, but the bit at the end, so like the stadium when uh, they reunite and. Uh, Ford, Aaron's character, yeah, kisses uh, Elizabeth Olsen at the end, and they grab each other. And, and that that we obviously couldn't fill that stadium, and we just ended up shooting it a little bit like a documentary. And and the problem with that was that there were no tracking markers really. There was no green screen. And one of the things we knew we were going to end up asking, um, you know, them to put back in was all the thousands of people in the seats and so um i think things like that ended up you know there's always a choice between you can be organic 
and cause a world of pain for the visual effects artists, or you can be very prescriptive and get it exactly as it was predetermined and make life a little bit easier sometimes for the visual effects people. And I personally feel that it's, it's worth breaking your back on a shot if the shot's really good or if its point use in the film is really, you know, good for the movie. And it's really heartbreaking to work on the shot that doesn't seem that exciting or interesting or feel that realistic. And so, as you know, what was great is I never, when we were filming, we never, ever, ever, I, ne I don't recall ever stopping because there wasn't tracking markers or we didn't have a green screen set up. They were usually either already set up or everyone was very good at saying, just film it, just film it, we'll figure it out. And, and that was my, like, when we started, that was the conversations we ended up having with everyone, which was, look, we can't, you know, we, the most important thing is to get the best shots we can and in the best performances. And, and you know, if we're stopping and we're ruining the moment because, you know, it's going to help us track something. Like, in this day and age, you know, thankfully, I know it causes a lot of pain, but you can kind of track anything with a bit of effort and you can kind of rotoscope most things. And, and so I feel like if I had my total way, if I shot another film, I'd probably not want to use any green screen or anything and, and put the actors in the closest thing we can to the real environment and just commit to rotoscoping because there's just something about really being somewhere and all the spill light that hits them and that they have something to look at and the fact that the reality kind of gets in the way and the light conditions, it, it just, I feel like those shots always feel a bit more successful than the ones where it was just someone stood in front of pure green. Like, they're so hard to do. And, and yeah. Do you remember when we were talking about monsters? Uh, we had this great scene where um, there was the cow or whatever it was that was making that incredible noise. And, of course, you know, you turned up and I think you made the point at the time that on a normal film that would have been cleared away by you know, the pre-team and you'd never have heard it and you'd never been able to be organic enough to film it and incorporate it in the film. And I understand that, that that worked super well in Monsters. I'm wondering at the other end of the spectrum in this film, when you like the setup when they return into uh, the, the uh, you know, Q-Zone, the, basically the quarantined area, and you've got this terrific, I think it's a fishing village, basically made up to look like Japan. Did you find that there was stuff that art department had done that they'd added to the scene in a way that that was so good that it gave you opportunities you hadn't thought of. In other words, I know that there are advantages in being a zero crew team for getting the the cow making the weird noise that you can incorporate in the film. But are there because you've got so many creative people contributing? Does it go the other way as well that they suddenly present stuff that you'd never even thought of? Because that seemed to be a particularly good piece of art direction to sort of reset that um, that uh, fishing village to look effectively like um, it was the uh, you know the post uh, accident. Japanese town. Yeah. Well, Owen, Owen uh, was the production designer on the film. Uh, Patterson, who's, who did all the Matrix and everything, and he's phenomenal as well. And um, I mean, I, it was funny because that, that scene, I think in the film is like, you know, uh, like one, uh, two, three, something like three shots or something. I can't remember. Um, but we shot two half days, so a whole day um, at the right tidal conditions and shot a stack load of things. And I, there was like this, for a while it was like, you know, 10, 15 shots long in, in the movie. And it was just because we kept finding these other cool angles. And 
I mean, what was cool about that was that we didn't go in with storyboards. It wasn't like it's going to be this shot, that shot, and this shot. That was one of those scenarios where we had a we had a boat, and then in front of that boat was a raft, and and on the raft was a techno crane, uh, so we could kind of move the camera around and get any shot we wanted, and then we would go down river just ahead of the boat or just behind it, and we'd just fish. So we'd just look for things like we'd just lower the camera around, look around, and we'd try and find out the accidents. And then when we got to the end, we'd just go back and reset. And we just did it until we ran out of light or the, or the tide wasn't right. And the shots that are in that sequence are not storyboarded. I never thought about until we saw them through the light or we kind of got a hint that we could, oh, maybe just go to the left here or maybe just do that. And so that, that was a good example of, you know, spontaneity and opportunistic uh, random acts of light or whatever you want to call it. And, and so we definitely did that, that side of things. But then... Because like, uh, that's going to be different know, from when you're doing, like when you did the, the Golden Gate Bridge sequence, it's a huge, giant green screen kind of set and it's much more, I mean, you're not looking for angles because they're not there yet because there isn't a digital background put in. So I imagine in, in that sort of in a scenario, you can't hunt shots so much as you just sort of design what you think you might like. Yeah, and also, you know, to be honest about these things, um you know, uh, with a lot of these set pieces, the second unit goes and gets a lot of the plates for some of this stuff. If I didn't, Jim, so, do a second unit on some of this stuff? Um, yeah, he probably got some of the VFX plates for sure. Yeah, I mean, everybody probably had a crack at it at one point or another. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was it was it was basically um, we have our own second unit that would that would go off and get. And the idea is in these sort of movies is that. Uh, so I'm told is that is that they they get the stuff without the lead actors, you know, and they get all the kind of stunt things and um, and things like that. And and with us, it was it wasn't quite like that. Um, uh, EJ, who was the director of Second Unit, he he just ended up doing whatever was needed. And sometimes that involved Aaron and and some of the cast and things like this. And and we had to just splint her off. And and obviously, from my point of view. What's uh, you know what ends up concerning you as a director is you know you you try and list everything you can think of that this shot needs to be so you sit and have meetings together and you go okay so it's this this and this and you list everything you can think of and you always forget something it's like um, and so it was it was uh, this, that's where the previs ended up ended up being like our bible in a way because we could watch the previs like I'd sit there with EJ and we'd go through it and we'd say. Okay, so this shot I think works really well. So just just get this, and I think the important aspects about this shot is this, this, and this. This other shot here, this is a placeholder. I don't think it's that strong. Try and get something else. And then we both discuss what else it could be, and he'd get options, and 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 it, it makes life easier, I think, for for some people that there's a second unit. But the problem, you you know, the reality of it is that you end up making two films at once, um, and so. As a director, or whatever you know, you are it. It really tears your mind because, as well as having to plan your own shots the next day, you're having to plan the second unit shots too. And so it's like doubling up on all the homework you have to do, which is kind of an insane amount of homework anyway. And and so, it's it's just the nature of the beast. I think when it comes to a film of this scale, it's just kind of the way a lot of it works. And um, and so yes, yeah, so when it came to set pieces, especially the Golden Gate sequence. We pretty much copied the previs on that stuff because 
um, for the stunts side of that, I, I wasn't there. I was, um, I forget what the schedule was. I was shooting the scenes, but, um, uh, EJ was chipping away at all that stuff, like getting all the shots from the previous like one over a few, you know, like about a week or something, whatever they had. Um, yeah. And so it's, yeah, that's kind of for the spontaneity and they would still be spontaneous. They'd go, look, Gareth, I know you said this, but I went and got this instead as well. See what you think. Did you and, encourage and your actors to be ad-libbing or spontaneous with the dialogue? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're all a bit different. And, um, like, some are very technical, and they don't really... They want to kind of know what the exact lines are beforehand, and that that's fine by me. And others are kind of like, they're up for that. And, and we had a, a child actor in the film as well, and I found that, you know, we definitely got our best stuff from him when we were very flexible and it didn't have to be specific dialogue. Um, like this one scene early on in the film when we first kind of meet the family, and that was literally like we shot for 45 minutes and had a cake and had lots of other things, and, and they just they just ate the cake and had some fun, and we filmed it for 45 minutes, and then in the, in the film we cut it down to like 30 seconds or whatever it is. And, and we were just trying to find little flavors, little little glimpses of, of moments that felt real and made you like these people and 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 it was that was kind of more like going back towards the approach with monsters a lot more and I and I, I really liked the way that stuff worked out and so um if I ever got to make a film again then that I'd probably be trying to put um a bit more of that into it because because it I don't know it's sort of it's that fine line between having a plan and turning up because the last thing you want to do is like I mean you end up doing it anyway because you can't there's so, so little time to, to prepare absolutely everything but there's when you turn up to a set and you don't have a plan and there's like 400 people looking at you going well what, what are we doing um, like you have to think of it on the spot and it's it's kind of so sort of nerve wracking and stressful trying to do that versus having some storyboards that you figured out in the car on the way there or you know something you previous six months ago um, but I think when you, when you get, when you want something really, that feels real and organic and, you know, obviously a lot of actors can bring that realism, like, like, like Brian and, and, you know, Lizzie, I think they're quite technical actors and, and they can do take after take and it's, it feels like a documentary the way that they're doing it. And Aaron's a lot more like me. He's very spontaneous and organic and, and I kind of liked like when we would film with Aaron, it's like you can do whatever you want, and and we'll just respond to it, and don't feel like you have to do it the same, and don't feel limited. And he would really like. I think he did his best stuff when he was given freedom like that, and 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 I like filming like that as well. But it just depends on the people because some crew, you know, you know, they, the first thing they do is you start talking when you're on a set. Is you know, if this guy's following you around and he's putting his little T marks um, with gaffer tape all over the floor. And as you finish this little explanation of like where the actors and what they're going to do, you look back and you see all these T marks. You realise someone's like someone's done a little path of uh, a trail of where everyone stands and, and which way they face. And and you think, oh no, you've just taken all the soul out of it. Because um, and and it always is really disheartening to see that those marks on the floor. And I was always peeling them off and uh, trying to keep it a little bit more spontaneous. But um, 
but people need to know, you know, when you focus pulling and all those things, you need to know where people are going to be. As, uh, so, it was, you know, I think our film's a mix of both of the approaches, really, depending on what the scene was. So I guess that begs the question that, you know, if you were going on to your next film, would it be one with effects or without? Would it be one that you would want to have? Um, I mean, this is a, you know, really serious tentpole picture and, and congratulations on that. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with also doing smaller films. What, you know, do you have in your heart where you'd like to go next? Um, I don't know. I don't know specifically about next, um, but I do... I do know, like, in my mind, like, if I got, if I was lucky enough to continue and have a career, um, the sort of things I'd like to do. And, and for me, I feel like, like, if you're really honest, the, the holy grail of filmmaking is you want to be artistic, you want to be creative, you want to be unique, but you also want to be successful and you want people to like what you've done. And, and I feel like there's two kind of approaches to achieving that. I think you can go and make a personal movie and and then kind of try and make this personal movie, try and like make it as, as commercial as possible. Or you can go and make a commercial movie and you try and make the commercial movie as, as personal as possible. And and you, you're both sort of trying to get to the same sweet spot and from either side of the spectrum. And I feel like with Monsters... You know, it was a personal thing. It was a very low-budget, um, you know, it was very, uh, you know, passion project from the heart. And and then the problem with it was it wasn't very, you know, it wasn't necessarily that commercial and, like, frustrate, you know, some audiences and see because it ended up being this uh, road trip without enough monsters in it and things like that. And so there's that kind of what happened to me with that. And then there's, like, this where it's blatantly this big commercial thing. And, you know, when people first think of Godzilla, they think of a popcorn movie. And then it was like, right, let's just try our damnedest to get as much heart and soul into this as we can and, and try and care about what's going on and, and, and make it feel as artistic as we can and, um, and all those things. And, and I, I never, you know, maybe if, even if I get to make a load of films, I'll never ever get there. But I think either whether I'm doing a really low-budget thing or a high-budget thing, I'm aiming for the same place, which is that that holy grail that I feel filmmakers like Spielberg, um, you know, Ridley Scott, James Cameron, they all achieved it. They 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 did something that was like groundbreaking and artistic and real and you know emotional, and it's like it can be done. Um, and and that's kind of like my stupidly high benchmark that I would, that keeps me going. I think. What's your relationship now to Godzilla? Is it? Uh, I mean, it's do you purely feel pl- it's purely platonic? <laughs> but yeah. But do you feel uh, uh, anyway protective over? I'm not going to say the franchise, but you know what I mean. Like, do you, do you feel like protective, or do you feel like? Uh, this, uh, you want to step back and see somebody else? Uh, I mean, I'm just I'm kind of curious <laughs> what your relationship is with it now. Um, I feel like no one, no one can own Godzilla. Like it, Godzilla sort of owns himself. Um, but I feel like, I feel like I have a relationship with him that, that I maybe as close as, you know, you know, mo- you know, anybody else might claim, you know, that's, that's got to work on a Godzilla movie or whatever. And 
I, I can't wait. I mean, genuinely, we'll see. We'll just see what happens. But I feel like I can say this now because in theory, this will go out after the film, right? Yep. Um, but I feel like, I feel like, like I'm just, I've learned so much from this and going through the experience, you, you know, I feel like so more knowledgeable about, you know, how to make a film and also about Godzilla um, and what we created, the universe that we tried to create, that I feel like if I got to do another one, you know, I'm sort of itching to have another crack at it because I feel like we could do something even better next time, if you know what I mean. It's 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 that feeling of, uh, like, I, you know, I'm never happy with anything I do and I always want to make it better. And, and so I just get excited about an opportunity to to do to do something else with him and and it does and feel it, almost like you have a reverence uh, a respect I guess um, to either the character or the history that got the character to where it's got to be you certainly I mean I know that you have a incredible film knowledge and respect for the craft but do you feel that kind of I mean it does feel from your seeing your work and hearing you talk that there is a uh, a genuine kind of uh, reverence or respect for is it the character or is it the history of the films? Um, probably both. And also the fact it's it's really a foreign thing. It's like, you know, it's Japanese. And in the same way that Akira Kurosawa um, feels in that it's, who am I, like someone who grew up in England, you know, who am I to, to be given this opportunity? It feels like, you know, you just got to tread carefully and be respectful because it's, it's, uh, you know, it does feel like it's, you know, and that's what's exciting and exotic about it is it feels like it's from another world. It's this thing that, um, that's not from where I grew up and, and that's kind of what I like and that's why it feels exciting. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think uh, I think everyone should be respectful of Godzilla, really. As uh, he, <laughs> you know, you don't want to make him angry. Well, thanks so much for taking time to talk to us, and uh, yeah, it was great. I've been looking forward to talking to you for ages about this, so I really do appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Cheers. See ya. Well, thanks so much to Gareth for joining us for that, and and thanks to Mike. I really appreciate the conversation about modern filmmaking, how the director has to deal with all the crafts, servicing them all at the same time rather than in a linear fashion. I think that he assumed and, and most people would assume and, and not take in the enormity of how having to do the design, story, shooting, uh, you know, we know how long it takes to, to, to build up CG assets and design and plan out and build, and that all has to be started before things are decided even in the film. And, and then audio has its own needs and just so many different moving parts in a, in a film like this and uh, has to be just an amazing amount of choreography. So it was interesting to get a little insight into that. So you've been listening to this FX podcast. Uh, we do other audio podcasts like the VFX show and the RC podcast. VFX show covers, you know, talk about films. Like we'll, I'm sure there'll be one about Godzilla uh, talking about the visual effects with visual effects artists sitting around talking about the effects in a recent movie. Or we also cover some classic films. The RC podcast covers digital cinematography with Jason Wingrove and Mike Seymour as your hosts. And we also have a high definition video podcast, FX Guide TV. And you can find all of these along with in-depth articles, news, and more at fxguide.com. And as I mentioned, don't forget to check out fxphd.com for our offerings in the online training world. So that'll do it for this episode. For my partners, Mike Seymour and John Montgomery, I'm Jeff Huser. 
We'll see you on the next FX Podcast. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide, LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.